All right, greetings once again from Free Money Free Church. It is Monday afternoon when we are podcasting here. Chilly Monday afternoon. It is a little bit colder today, that's for sure. We've, we've been spoiled by this December weather to this point, but it's coming. It's uh, Christmas time. you got to have some Christmas weather. Well, I know that you're looking forward to snow. Which, that would always help. Well, that's interesting. Okay, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's talk about Luke 1. We can talk about your preferences for snow some other time. There, there's probably some theological discussion to have there, but we'll, we'll save that for another podcast. Uh, let's today instead talk about Mary's song in Luke 1, 46 to 55. So obviously, kind of started a, a slight change in direction here for the Advent season. Right. Um, we've been in Acts, taking a little bit of a break from Acts. We'll resume that here in January. But in, in the month of December, we're looking at the story of Jesus coming. And in particular, there, there's, there are the four songs in Luke 1 and 2 that we're looking at. Mary's song, Zachariah's song, the angel's song, and then Simeon's song. Right. So yesterday we were talking about Mary's song, the Magnificat, um, which again, like I said yesterday, comes from the Latin translation of the first word of the song, which means to magnify or glorify. All that to say, Jim... Um, as you've been thinking about this song and, and, and the content of what Mary's saying here, um, just curious again, like, and I think this is maybe the best way to get the ball rolling. Like what, it, what is it that God's been putting on your heart? What have you been meditating on these last 24 hours? Yeah. You know, so just as I've been thinking about it, um, I was I, more than anything, I just kind of thought about the context of what was going on when Mary says the things that she says, right? Especially, I mean, the verse that the content of the verse that I really think a lot on is 49 for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Right. Like that's an awesome statement about God. Mm. And yet I found myself thinking, what is the context that Mary says this? Okay. She's a teenage unwed pregnant girl in Israel. That's not a good combination, especially in this time period. Right. Right. Like she is a social outcast and a religious outcast at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, you know, she's obviously going to Elizabeth for some reason, you know, I was, I was really wondering like, has, has Joseph been revealed by the angel yet? Does Joseph know all this, you know, cause Joseph at one time is putting plan on putting to Mary away. Where is that in this story here when right. she sings this song, even like, I would really like to know that because like, that's a lot, that's a, that's not an easy point of life for Mary to be in. Right. It's, and so that really hit me that Mary would say for he has done uh, for he is mighty and does great things for me when Mary has been put in a very awkward social and religious position, right? Being pregnant out of wedlock as a teenager. Sure. That's remarkable to go, wow, do I, how do I approach difficult seasons in life? And do I just pause and look at it and go, man, God, you have done great things. Mm-hmm. Um, holy is your name. You know, uh, like that just like that just really sat on me really hard to think about what was going on in Mary's life when she proclaims that she's not proclaiming it when everything's easy at the moment. Sure. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out, at least in our English translation here, for he who's mighty has done great things for me. She doesn't say done a great thing for me because that would limit it to, oh, like this, me being able to carry Jesus, like that's a great thing, Mm -hmm. but it's done great things for me. Um, you know, I, 
I, we not, you and I talked about this last week, what you just brought up, and I'm not sure that we know exactly where we are in the timeline. Between Matthew 1 and Luke 1, it's kind of hard to decipher, like, is this the period where she and, you know, where Joseph's resolved to quietly divorce her? Like, you know, why did she go visit Elizabeth? I, I don't know that we know. Even if we were to assume, though, that that wasn't the case and that Joseph and her are in good stead, like, I think we have to say, like, life in the first century um, wasn't easy. Um, and in particular, you're right, like, even if Joseph was still with her, the idea that she would um, be giving birth to a child as a teenager and, and probably in some kind of, obviously, circumstances that are hard to explain, like, this wouldn't be easy necessarily. Like, it comes with lots of difficulty, and yet she's able to say... He has done great things for me. Right. So, yeah, I, I think for me, verse 49 was the verse that I found myself thinking about most last week. His mercy is, for, or excuse me, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. That is a pretty remarkable thing to think about. And, you know, last night in our gospel community group, we were, someone had just mentioned, like, if you think about the God of the universe doing great things for you, Mm-hmm. It is pretty staggering, right? I mean, the fact that, uh, you know, obviously the, the ultimate culmination we would point to is Christ dying on the cross for our sins. But if you just think about all the ways that he blesses us on a regular daily basis, when he has no need to, like he, it's just his kindness and his mercy. Um, and even even looking ahead to next week, and don't want to get too much into this, but verse 78 talks about the tender mercy of our God. He's tender and merciful. And he does great things for us. That is pretty staggering. And I do think it's, it speaks to, you know, our own tendency to, to complain or grumble that we often fail to see the great things that he's done for us and instead focus on the hard things. And that's not to say there's legitimately hard things or that there's not legitimately hard things because there are. And in fact, there's some people in our church who've just gone through some really, really, really difficult things. And so we're not trying to like wash over those and say, well, come on, he's done great things for you. Just get over it. That's not what we're saying. Like there's a place to lament all those things and to grieve it and to hate it even. But at the same time, to be able to say he has done great things for me, I think is still true, especially if you're a Christian. Right. Well, and even in, in 46 and 47, right. My, you know, my soul magnifies the Lord, you know, she's, uh, making God out to be great. I mean, I think that's what she's proclaiming, right, with that phrase. Yeah, that's and, how I would take that. And, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You know, so she's even saying this in a joyful attitude. You know, she is, you know, she's thankful to God for what's happening to her and what is going on with her. And she's joyful and she's rejoicing in it. And like, like I try to think, boy, would I react in that way? Would I be joyful? I mean, in some ways, her world has just been turned upside down. Right. There's a lot of unknowns, probably scary, all, you know, all that. Right, right. And yet she's saying, I'm rejoicing in God. Like, she is able to look beyond all of the um, potential difficulties of what this has brought to her and is able to see this is God's good work in my life, and I'm going to rejoice in that no matter if it makes things uncomfortable, right? Sure. Yeah. That's good. So I want to ask you a question here. Like, I think, I think one of the major themes of this particular Psalm or Psalm, well, it is a Psalm actually like, but not in the Psalms, but this Mm -hmm. song of Mary is the idea that God exalts 
the humble and he humbles the exalted. Um, in other words, those who are prideful and in particular, those who are self-righteous and trust in their own resources will be brought down. But those who humble themselves and those who fear God and those who recognize their own helplessness are those that are lifted up. So um, I think last night we, we did a little exercise where we just talked about how many times you see that pattern in Scripture, and it didn't take long for us to find a huge list of that in Scripture. My question is this, like how, like, how does that impact we live the way we live on a day-to-day basis? If, if that's a pattern mm-hmm. that we see throughout Scripture, that God exalts the humble— and he humbles the exalted, that he lifts up those who fear him and submit to his reign and rule, and he takes down those who are prideful and trust in their own resources. Like, how, how, does, that, how does that impact us on a day-to-day basis, Jim? Like, how, how should you and I and other people live differently because we know that this is a principle that we see throughout Scripture? And, I mean, just to give a few examples, like the apostles, common, uneducated men. David, like, when he shows up on the scene, they're like, why is this guy going to fight the giant, right? Like, um, you know, you think of even the town that Jesus is from. Does anything good come from Nazareth? Or Bethlehem, is this out-of-the-way town too? Like all these, there's all, all these themes throughout Scripture you see in First Peter or James. Like we mentioned several passages last night too in the New Testament that talk about this idea of God exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. Like, so all that to say, how does that change the way we live on a day-to-day basis? So I think the first thing that we probably need to do is recognize, at least I think this is what I have to do. I have to recognize that my own tendency is to exalt myself. Right. Like that's my natural bent. My natural bent is to say, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to be self-sufficient. Like I think in order to, I I just, I think that's a, a key to humility is to recognize that I'm prone to not be humble. Hmm. Um, and I know what's that I know what's in my heart and to be honest about evaluating myself well and go, yeah, you know what? Pride is an area that I struggle with and I fully recognize that. And I think that's the, to me, I think that's the first step to take is to say, okay, so God, this is why I need your help to be humble. Right. Um, and you know, because I think that's where you got to start. I don't think that you can, I don't know that, like to say, oh, I just need to say I need to be humble. Well, why do you need to be humble? Well, because I tend to be proud. Right. Um, and I just think good, honest evaluation of that is, I think, is a good first step at least. Yeah. No, that's good. So to kind of piggyback off of that, like what ways do you think pride? I think that's a, a common thing that we all struggle with is pride. Um, but like, you know, there's very few people who come out and say, look at me. I'm awesome. Like I'm the best. Like that, that's, I mean, there are some people who do that obviously, but that's not usually the way pride manifests itself in the average day or in the average Christian's life in their day to day life. So what, what would be some evidences you think that we're trusting in ourselves, or that we're, we've grown prideful? Cause I think, I think what you're saying is good just for the record. Like that that's the place to start. Like if God exalts the humble and humbles exalted, like let's just admit that, Hey, sometimes we, not only struggle with pride, we are prideful. So how does that manifest itself in our day-to-day living, you think? Uh, I think that when... I think that when I don't stop to pray first 
is probably indication that I'm doing things in my own strength. Sure. Problem arises, situation comes up and I'm problem solving. That's what I normally do. Sure. Okay. How do I fix this? What do I need to do? You know, whether it be, you know, a parenting issue or a marriage issue or just a maintenance around the house issue, you know, all right, I got to fix this or what do I need to do or something at, at church at work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my natural bent. And that probably shows where I am pretty self-reliant and self-sufficient and says so saying, Hmm, okay, you know what? I'm going to stop here and I'm going to pray. Uh, and I'm going to ask God for help right. and, and to guide me and, and direct me. Um, I think that's one thing. I think another thing just for me, like, I think a lot of times, like I'm learning to pause and to, before I talk. Hmm. Um, Because sometimes I think that also shows, like if I'm just ready to spew out something, I haven't really taken the moment to say, okay, spirit, will you guide me in this moment? Right. Like a lot of times I'm thinking, um, I'm just going to rely on my own intellect in this moment and not just to say like, okay, God, why don't you inform me here in this moment? How should I respond to this situation? Or what should I say to this person? Right. That's good. I mean, I think pride, pride is probably something that we all struggle with to one degree or another. And it shows up in different forms. There are, there are people who are just boasters, right? Like, look at me. Like, But I think um, what, what you pointed out, like prayerlessness would be an indication of pride. Like, I'm just going to do this on my own. Um I think one that I see in myself and I sometimes see my kids and we have this conversation, like if, if every time someone points out something to you, your natural response is defensiveness, like at some point you might want to ask the question, like, why are you mm. always defending yourself? Like, mm. do you think that you are always right? Um, so, you know, obviously I, there's times where people will give you critiques and they're off base. Like, but I, I think our, our posture should be one of humility to recognize it's possible I'm wrong here. Um, I'm not seeing myself clearly. Um, one of my mentors in college said, you know, whenever, whenever you're critiqued, like the right response to ask first is, well, what if this is true? Rather mm. than what if that's wrong? But to right. say, what if this is true? And, and yeah, sometimes you're going to get critiques from, from people who really don't have your best interests in mind. And they're, they're just, they are wrong. Like, and you need to sort through that, but to, to start with the posture of like, well, maybe they're right. Like, what, what if this is true? So I think, I guess my point is like that there's a, a creeping of pride that is maybe easier than we know and probably mm-hmm. um, more than we're willing to admit. Like it just creeps up in all kinds of areas. If you think you're right all the time, and, and I'm saying this for myself as opposed to just a generic like you, but like if I think I'm right all the time, or right. if I'm defensive, or if I'm quick to run to my own resources or intellect rather than prayer, like those are all indications that I'm not humbling myself before God. Right. Um, and you know, I think that's it's dangerous um, because pride comes before the fall, right? But it's also dangerous because we're missing on the blessing of walking the life of humility. Right. I also like maybe to piggyback on what you just said there, like a willingness to say like of your own, like of my own initiative, like, Hey, I want you to speak into my life. Like I'm going to open myself up to, to be vulnerable to say, Hey, 
will you speak in my life? Like if you see something that I'm doing that's not right, would you let me know what that is? Right. Um, because I think that's part of that being open to correction and to say, you know, hey, I haven't arrived. I don't have it all figured out. I've got blind spots. I probably need help. And so to ask people that, you know, you trust and who, you know, who, you know, obviously you believe are very, you know, spirit filled to say, Hey, will you speak into my life if you feel I'm off somewhere? What's weird about that? Like it is that although what you just said seems very intuitive from the gospel, in other words, like the reason we're Christians is because we know we're sinners and we know that we mess up and we know that that we can't stand on our own righteousness. And yet for some reason, even as Christians, when, once we become followers of Christ, it's almost like we want to protect our reputation from that point forward when the very thing that we rest on is that we are sinners and that we need the grace of God. Like, right. So it's just, it's just odd to me. And I, I do the same thing myself where, you know, we, we, become blind to our own sin or we don't want correction or we, we're not allowing people to speak in our lives, even though we know we're sinners. Like, it seems like that should be one of the most obvious things that we would say. Yeah, well, of course I'm messed up. Like speaking to my life, like you're going to have to, because I, I know I've, I've got a deceptive heart. Now by the grace of God, I've been redeemed and the spirit's doing a work in me and I'm not what I once was. Right. But you know, I, I think any serious Christian would have to admit like we still sin. Right. And so the idea that we try to pretend as if that's not true or to be defensive or to cover up our sin or to put on this veneer for other people, it's just kind of weird. Like ba- on the basis of what Christianity is based on, it shouldn't be that way. But I agree with you. That is the way it is. And I think we need to try to fight against that culture and just be humble enough to recognize, hey, I, 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 like, I am thankful for the work the Spirit is doing. I'm not what I once was, but I still need help. Would you please help me? Right. And I think... That is a path to blessing. And and obviously, there is a sense here in Luke 1 where we're talking about the ultimate reversal of the person who has not put their trust in Christ at all, and that person will be brought down. But even on a day-to-day basis for Christians, when we're putting our trust in ourselves to a degree, like we're missing out on the joy of what it means to walk in step with the Spirit in humility, right? Right, right. I was reading in this morning, I was reading in, in Mark Chapter two, where Jesus said, and those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners like Jesus is inviting our sickness. Like that's what I was really thinking through. Like he's not asking me to cover up my sickness or to ignore my sickness. He's actually inviting that right to him. Like he's inviting my sickness to him. Like that's what he's calling for. He's calling for sick people, not healthy people. And to recognize that I'm okay to come to him in my sickness. Like I need to admit that I'm sick to get the help that I need from, you know, from the great physician of Jesus. Right. Right. And to say, it's okay to admit that I'm sick and that I need, that I need help. Right. Right. And to embrace that and not to say, well, I'm just going to like wallow in my sickness, but to say, Jesus is the great physician that's come to help me in my sickness and to run to that, right? Just like you run to a doctor when you're sick. Um, yeah. So I don't know. That's just something that's just I was been chewing on since this morning. So let me ask a, a, a question that's related, but a little bit down a different trail here. So I, w- I want to think in particular about verse 53 for a second. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. 
so I think our, we had a conversation about this a little bit last night, Gus, with Kuna Gupta, I think went in a helpful direction. That's why I want to talk about it here a little bit. Does verse 53 mean that we should aim to be more uh, or have less riches and less money? Um, does it mean that, you know, living in poverty is probably a better goal, like that, that in that case we'll be more filled? Um, or, or what do you think verse 53 is getting at? Because... To put it in context of church history, there have been some over the years who have said that, right? Who say, well, we should live a life of, of humble estate. Like, in other words, mm -hmm. like, you know, Mary, Mary says, you've looked upon my humble state of your servant. Like, so should the lesson we take away from this song of Mary be like, hey, we should, we should try to maybe minimize our materialism and pull back a little bit, like, and just kind of live a more humble life. Like, do you think that's an implication of this particular song? So what I'm thinking is I don't think that's what that's saying because I think that, okay, so I think that maybe what Mary is hitting at here is that you can run the risk of not being hungry when you're rich. And let me see if I can unpack that a little bit mm -hmm. is I think there's, I think there's a, I think there's, I, I think this is referring to a spiritual hunger. Uh, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. You know, Jesus says in, in Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, I think that there's an idea here that to, to recognize that our true satisfaction in life is going to come from feeding on the things of God. Uh, and that one of the warnings I think like Paul gives about the rich is you can run the risk of not hungering for the things of God anymore because you're finding that you're being satisfied with other things. And so I think that, I think that there's a spiritual call here to say, Hey, don't let your spiritual hunger be satisfied with material possessions that we need to hunger after God and the things of God and that he's the one that ultimately fills us. He fills us more than riches will. So I think it's an idea that says, don't let the riches be the thing that fills your hunger. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's what I'm, I don't know if I'm articulating that well, but I do wonder if that's where Mary is going with this is say, where are you going to get satisfied in riches and in themselves are not a problem unless you come to the point where you become filled and satisfied in them. Yeah, I think I would take it in a similar direction to what you're saying. I mean, riches and poverty themselves are not um, sinful or more holy. In other words, like, right. just because you're poor, that doesn't mean, oh, automatically I'm holy. Right. Just because you're rich, that doesn't mean you're a sinner. Or right. vice versa. Like, I guess there could be an opposite argument too, right? Like, um, in fact, the prosperity gospel would say it that way. And I don't think that's what's going on here. Um, I don't think there's an indication like, hey, we should start to sell all our stuff and live in the, you know, live in a box or whatever, because that's what it means to live with the humble state and God will fill the hungry and he'll, um, what does it say about the rich? He'll send the rich away empty. I, I don't think that's what's going on here. We can think of examples in scripture where people had plenty of resources and they weren't necessarily condemned for it. Job would be an example. Right. From what we can tell, Job had ton of money and he was still declared to be a righteous man. I think Abraham would fall in that category too. Right. Um, so my, my, I, I think what's going on here is that Mary is not so much um, talking about the value of, of living a humble life in the sense that 
um, you know, you just don't have many resources to your name. I think she's talking about a mindset here more than anything. And I think in that way, maybe the key to the, the whole song is verse 50 is mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so I think now I, I do think she's maybe not just talking about spiritual things here. I think she's talking maybe in generalities that the, the rich like sometimes trust in their own resources and they trust in their own things. And like, and because of that, like just because you have resources and just because you have wealth doesn't mean that you're going to end up in a good spot. In fact, if you continue to trust in yourself and your own resources, eventually you'll be brought down. I think that is part of what she's saying here. Um, but I think that the point here is not like, Hey, live in poverty or, you know, I guess I'm opposite and find riches. The point is like humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Recognize it's not your own resources. Recognize that a life that is lived for God in submission to God, that is the key and the path to joy and the path mm-hmm. to long-term exaltation. And so now in some cases that might mean that you, you do scale back some of your, your materialism. I, I would think that would be an implication. I'm not going to keep collecting stuff to make myself happy because I don't need it. I'm satisfied right. in God. Right. Um, but I don't think it means I, what I, what I think we have to be careful to say is like, let's not run to a life of like, you know, just sell everything asceticism. Like the worse we treat ourselves, the more holy we are. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think Mary's talking about a mindset that those who trust in their own resources and in their own strength, that's the person who will be brought low. Right. So all that to say, like, I think, I think the implication of that is, that our goal in life should not be to accumulate more resources, but rather it should be to walk humbly with our God. That should be our right. goal, um, right. to humble ourselves under his plan. And whatever he does, riches-wise or not riches-wise, like we can trust him in that, but that's not our goal. And if, if we're trusting in those things to bring us contentment and happiness, and this is what you were getting at, I think, then we're going to find ourselves really dissatisfied in the end. Right. So I, I, I think we do have to be careful to say, hey, let's not make this say more than what it's saying. Mary's not saying... Right. Oh, it'd be better if you were living in poverty. Like, um, in last night in RGCG, someone points to Proverbs 30, which talks about, Lord, don't give me riches and don't give me poverty. And then, right. like, that whole mindset, like, of, you know, I don't want to have so little that I have to steal, but I don't want to have so much that I forget about you. That's Proverbs 30. Right. Um, so I, I think I think what we're not saying here is let's live a life of poverty. What we are saying is let's have a mindset where we recognize we don't have our own resources we don't have our own strength. We are helpless and needy and empty-handed. Lord, we look to you. I think right. that's what Mary's talking about here. Right, yeah. It makes me think of uh, Hebrews 13, uh, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can uh, confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what command do to me. The author of Hebrews is saying the remedy of being free from the love of money is to see that God will never leave you or forsake you. Right. You know, to say, hey, this is where your true contentment comes from. This is where your identity, this is where everything about you comes from. It's not what you have, it's who you have. Um, And that you have God, not the riches that you have. Yeah, and in First Timothy chapter six, nine and ten, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. 
So it's the desire to be rich. It's the love right. of money, this issue. There are right. not riches. It's, it's a hunger for riches, right. not a hunger for God. Now, we have to be honest here that lots of times when you are rich, you get that hunger, right? Like, sure. And so we, we, sh- we can't say it's totally disconnected because right. oftentimes there is a connection. Right. But what we're saying is the issue here, again, is not how much money you have or don't have. The issue is that you're walking humbly with God and that your right. satisfaction is found right. in Him and right. your trust is found in Him and not in material resources or money or things like that. Right. Okay. I don't have much else today. You got anything else in Luke 1 that you want to talk about? Uh, you know, I don't think so. Okay. So next week, we're looking at Luke 1, 67 to 79, Zechariah's prophecy. A lot of Old Testament stuff going on in Luke 1, 67 to 79. So that will be another interesting passage. Um, I, I have realized as I've been diving into this week and last week, like, it is somewhat challenging to work through poetry or songs because it's just got a different feel to it than a narrative does. And yet, um, a good proportion of the Bible is actually in poetry or songs. And so I think it's good for us to be able to learn how to navigate our way through that genre that we find sprinkled throughout Scripture, including in Luke 1 and 2. So, uh, all that to say, hopefully, hopefully this Advent season, you are making it your goal to to just be able to meditate on the significance of the coming of Christ. And right. if, if you're in a family situation, you're, you know, if you're single, then you're doing that yourself or with others that are around you in your extended family. But if you're in a family that you are making your goal as a family together to have our hearts focused on the greatness of what Christmas really means, right. which is that we're celebrating the coming of Christ and we're looking forward to his next advent when he comes again. Right. Yeah. Mary's song was all about God. Right. Not about herself, right? Which I think a lot of people probably confuse right. today, that they think it's a lot about Mary. It's not about Mary. It's about God. That was her focus, and I think that's absolutely what our focus in the Advent season season should be about. Let's just focus on God. He is magnificent, and let's look to Him. Absolutely, good word. All right. Well, look forward to talking about Luke one sixty seven to seventy nine next week. Until then, keep pressing on and keep looking upward.